0: Thank you. host, Michelle Broad, founder and CEO of Urban Book Editor, and I am very happy to share this hour with you, where we examine all those places where spirit meets life and the joys and challenges that may bring. Now, you guys know i like to start by thanking Ms. Beverly Black and Tribe Family Channel for helping me create this space for us. Tribe Family Channel is home to an assortment of thought-provoking shows that explore life, spirit, business, and culture, including The Woman at the Well, hosted by Ms. Beverly Black herself. Somewhere in the Middle was born on Tribe Family Channel, and though we've grown onto our own platform, we are ever grateful and loyal to our roots. To paraphrase an African proverb, we are here only because we stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. I want to say thank you to my guest on the November 8th show, author Sherry Hill. You can find Sherry Hill's book, The Marquise Hill Story, From the Cradle to the Bowl on Amazon. If you missed that show, make sure you listen to the replay. You can find our complete show archives, including the November 8th show, at the, Somewhere in the Middle Podcast.com. I also want to shout out Bruce George of the Geniuses Common Movement, which encourages all of us to embrace our inner genius and share it with the world. This is a really important message, and I hope you guys will share it with the youth. But it's not just for the kids. I mean, even we adults sometimes need to be reminded that the world needs our genius. Learn more about the Geniuses Common Movement at www. I am really pleased to introduce this week's guest, Stefan Ho is a Danish author and filmmaker who lives in Copenhagen, Denmark. As a true crime author, he has worked all over the world and written about such topics as child abductions, the Ku Klux Klan, the white supremacy movement, human trafficking, and the death penalty. Stefan emphasizes that he always describes problems through the people who are victims of them rather than through experts sitting at their desks. Therefore, he always follows his main characters closely over a period of time, and he's not afraid to put himself in danger zones. He is also known to tell his stories in a captivating and engaging way, so readers feel that they have a good reading experience. And besides authorship, he also produces documentaries. so I'd like to welcome Stefan Howe to Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Berard. Stefan, thank you for being on the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, I don't know if you know. I don't know if you had a chance to you know check this out, but I like to start my interviews with just two questions, and that's because I believe that they really lead into um, what you're doing now. So if you're ready, I will ask my two questions.
1: Please do.
0: All right. Stefan Howe, who are you, and how did you become who you are today?
1: Well, I am the father of uh, Sophia, and uh, Sophia actually uh, turned me into the man I am today. Um, Normally, when you ask people who they are, they go off telling about their work and all their accomplishments and so on. But when I had my daughter, actually tomorrow, it's um, seven years since she was born. When I had her, that changed my life completely. Up till then, I'd been a businessman, uh, though I'm only 43 years old, I um Embarked on a journey as a businessman when I was 24 years old. I opened up my first business back then. It was a media production company that worked with um, newspapers on outsourcing basis. So daily newspapers in Denmark, they would actually ask my company to produce certain bits of their publication. People, or actually the readers, they would believe that all this journalism was produced by staff working for, for, for the newspaper, but it was people that I hired. Photographers, designers, journalists, and so on. And till I had my daughter, that was my identity. That was the work that I did. That was the clients that I had, and so on. But when I had my daughter, it uh, completely changed. And it completely changed for something better, because I guess that Who you are is flesh and blood instead of um, numbers, instead of uh, clients' names and so on. So that is the the answer that I give today when people, they ask who I am. I am um, first and foremost my daughter's father. And uh, what I do is something that I'm very passionate about because when I had my daughter, I decided that it wasn't going to be something corporate anymore. It was going to be something that I genuinely felt good about. And what do I really feel good about? I feel good about writing books and producing documentaries instead of doing a lot of corporate stuff as I did early on. So that is who I am and that is what I do today.
0: Well, and that's important work that you're doing because your books and your documentaries are about important topics, right? So you've covered topics such as child abduction, the KKK, white supremacy, human trafficking, the death penalty. I mean, those are big topics. How did you decide that you were going to do that versus, I don't know, maybe, you know, no, no slam at uh, Ken Burns. I love Ken Burns' work, but, you know, you could have done baseball, right?
1: I really, what I'm doing today is actually based on one of the first big assignments I did as a journalist. It was back in 2001. I went to um, Belgrade in Serbia and I was looking into the topic of the phenomenon human trafficking. Mm. Because if you go back almost these 20 years, no one actually knew much about human trafficking. Mm -hmm. But after the civil war on the Balkans, it was a mecca for criminals. And one of the ways that they started making huge amounts of money, not from dealing drugs or transporting and selling guns was by transporting and selling human beings. So, I went to to Belgrade um, almost these 20 years ago, and I looked into this new phenomenon, this new topic, this hugely important issue today and also back then, and it gave me and my life meaning, writing about these people that was being trafficked into uh, the European Union, some by their own free will, others by force. And I felt that I did something good, that I did something with my life that had had importance to other people. And I actually felt that I tried to put focus on a problem that would help people not becoming the victims of this problem. Mm -hmm. And then slowly afterwards, I was blinded by money in the way that it was much faster and easier making money from going in to business than actually doing something good for the world as writing about a topic as human trafficking. And I realized that as we started out talking about just a few years back, six, seven years back that my life would actually make more meaning to myself if I was spending my time on on writing about these topics. And I feel, in my personal opinion, I feel it's important helping people that cannot help themselves. And if you're being the victim of human trafficking, if you are being the victim of a crime committed against you, if you're being the victim of a white supremacist movement, or if you're being the victim, as my latest book, The Deprived Innocent on Death Row is about, wrongful convictions, then you need other people who will actually be your voice, helping you, guiding you, shed light on this problem. And actually, as we're doing now, While we're having this conversation, the two of us actually raise an awareness about this problem. So that gives my life uh, meaning today, writing about these things. And if I should do something good with my life as an author or documentary maker, as a journalist, it should be about topics that actually matters, Uh, you know personally i do not enjoy baseball i enjoy <laughs> soccer but and 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 not totally accept that uh, in, in 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 you know some corners of life this might be important as well but to me that's leisure that's entertainment um the other topics that we will just oh that's by no means leisure or or or, or entertainment. And that's that serious business, and and I think that, you know, we need to put focus on on these important things.
0: Well, and those those are definitely big topics, and you know, um, here in the United States, there's a lot of discussion about uh, the death penalty. A lot of states actually have completely stopped with the death penalty, mm-hmm. probably because of people like you raising awareness of of this issue in particular, but other issues as well. Um, so when you write about these topics, are you writing about them you know, on a global level or are you writing about them at individual state levels or individual country levels?
1: Mainly all the work that I do today is focused on America. Mm. Uh, and when I write about wrongful convictions, it is, only some, it, it, it is only concerning uh, the United States. And the strange thing normally I would say the funny thing, but it's not funny by, by no means. The strange thing says the strange thing is, Americans, they often ask me, "Why don't you write about the death penalty in Europe?" And then I just have to reply, "There's no such thing as the death penalty in Europe. If you want to compare America to other countries when it comes to the death penalty, you'll have to compare to countries such as Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Iran, Yemen, North Korea. America or the United States, it's one of the only Western countries left that still kills its own people mm-hmm. and you're right thank god that a lot of states they are abolishing the death penalty today and one of the reasons it's definitely wrongful convictions but perhaps it's also a question of that the death penalty has been such a normal way of conducting business in America for centuries, Mm -hmm. and that might be changing now. It might be changing now in the way that people say, hmm, just because we've been doing it for centuries does not mean that we have to carry on doing it. Um, and, And I think that's one of the reasons why the opinion about the death penalty is shifting. If you go back just two decades, 80 to 90% of all Americans, they would be in favor of the death penalty. The latest survey I saw, it was actually less than the ha- than half of the Americans that were in favor today. And what good does it actually do? It does not deter crimes. It is much more expensive Conducting the death penalty than putting people in prison for the rest of their life. And furthermore, perhaps the most important thing, you can get an innocent man out of his cell, but you can't get him out of his grave. Mm -hmm. So tell me one reason that we should actually carry on with the death penalty. If you risk killing one innocent man. That is one reason that's good enough for abolishing the death penalty. And when I give this argument, this statement, people, they often get me confused. They misunderstand me in the way that they think that I'm source on crime. No, I'm not. I believe that if you do the crime, you do the time. And if you do a heinous crime, if you kill another person, then you should definitely pay the price for it. But when you have till today 165 Americans that have been put on death row despite being innocent, that's 165 people we could have killed Mm -hmm. executed for something they have never done. So let's back up a bit. Before they went on death row, you know what they were? They were innocent mothers and fathers, Mm -hmm. just like you and me. And they were not even innocent mothers and fathers. They were also innocent sons and daughters. We have people in prisons in America who have done nothing. Perhaps the biggest crime was to leave their front door in the morning, go into work to do something good for other people. And then they just ended up in the wrong place at the wrong time. Or they went out the front door and became the victims of misconduct done by law enforcement, prosecution, etc. But one thing they never did was commit a crime. So if you're in favor of the death penalty, how on earth will you ever be able to defend that you might be the reason why one of these innocent mothers or fathers are gonna be executed. And if we execute people, especially the innocent ones, and innocent people have been killed, we know of innocent Americans that have been executed. How are we also gonna defend that their sons and daughters they're gonna be collateral damage of the death penalty? I've interviewed numerous relatives of um, people who have been put on death row and they suffer as well. A lot of these people, they, they actually try to commit suicide afterwards because what's done to their mothers and fathers are so cruel that these kids, they find it very difficult to go on with life afterwards. So if you knew that your dad had been executed for something that he never did, and it might actually turn out that he was proven innocent afterwards, um, it might affect you in a way as a child where you feel that you didn't didn't do enough to protect and save your dad, that you'll actually try to take your own life. That means that The death penalty does not only affect the person being executed, innocent or not. It affects an entire family. It affects an entire community. It affects an entire nation. And, you know, I feel like asking, What do you actually think will do the most harm to a person that has done the crime spending the rest of his life or her life in prison or being executed? You could also say that in some way being executed, understand me correctly when I say it, is the easy way out for both society and the prisoner naturally understanding that no one wants to be executed. But, why not imprison people for life, educate these people, educate society by their example?
0: You know, you said something that's really interesting here, and I think that a lot of people maybe, maybe didn't pick up on this, but one of the things that you, you kind of got around to in a way was that was really that? It's almost because it's an easy way out. You basically get society to not have to deal with the person, but the person who, if they did commit the crime, uh, also gets to not really deal with their with what they've done. If you execute them, right? Mm-hmm. And I think there is something to be said about the. The type of punishment and length of punishment we could debate that for a long time, but in the United States, most people don't realize that prisons are really um, horrible places. They are not. Um, they are not. They're not good places. They're often grimy. They are. Uh, people are lacking essentials. Uh, they're money based systems. So even though you have no way of really making money, you have to pay for everything in there. It's not like you're getting free soap and toothpaste and food and all of that. Um, When you do get free food, it's barely edible. Uh, Many prisons have rats and other problems, holes in the ceilings and mold and various other things and there's inadequate health care and if anybody's done any research on this, they'd see that like, for example, right now, the state of Arizona is under a court order because of the woefully lacking healthcare. Add to it the cramped conditions, uh, riots that break out periodically because of these horrible conditions. It, it kind of is the easy way out, right? If you're letting, if you're letting somebody escape, quote unquote, through the death penalty. So what would be, what would be an alternative solution? So let's say we say we can't imprison everybody for life. What would be another solution that you might recommend?
1: As I started out by saying, I think that if you do the crime, you also do the time. Mm -hmm. And being in prison shouldn't be being in a hotel, but still if you put people in prison you have to treat them in a human decent way to maintain your own humanity and decency so no people should live with rats holes in the ceiling as you said uh, a lack of medical care and so on on the other hand being in prison should also be a place where you actually feel the consequences of the crimes that you've committed. And then we need to put something on top of that. But because my advice would always be when people, they go to prison, and it doesn't matter if they go to prison for two, three, five years, or 50 years, depending on the crime that they did, they always need to have a lot of counseling. They need to have a lot of education because the people that we put in prison, some of them will actually leave prison and be out on the streets for perhaps five, 10, 20, 30 years to come. So today I really feel like asking questions what would you prefer having a person that has spent 30 years in prison for a heinous crime, and then he's out for the 30 years that remains of his life for those 30 years, would you actually prefer a person that just became a more hardened, brutal person in prison? And then, out on his own in the streets, would you actually have a person that did the 30 years but had a lot of counseling, a lot of education that made him or her realize that what they did was definitely wrong, but they learned from it and will make sure by the counseling and the education that they get that they won't do the same crime one more time creating other victims. Mm-hmm. I know what I would prefer.
0: Right.
1: I would prefer a lot of counseling. I would prefer a lot of education. I would prefer to take these monsters and turn them into human beings. But also have to say that when I debate this as a day with Americans,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I get two things. One thing, why do you as a Dane, as a European, stick your nose into this, leave this to the Americans? And that's one thing that I get. Another thing that I get is also that a lot of Americans, and I do believe that it's because of the way that Americans approach uh, our Americans approach on on crimes is often something to do with hardship, hardness. And that we just lock people up and then they should suffer. And yeah, they should. But there's also a day after tomorrow. And if they're out on the street the day after tomorrow, then it won't do you anything good if they've been suffering for 30 years and didn't learn anything from it. So they're back out on the streets tomorrow. And able to create new problems for you and your family. So I think that the question of, or the aspect of education and, and counseling should rank much higher when we're talking about censusing and, and, and imprisonment in, in America.
0: Well, one of the challenges I think is that a lot of people don't really understand some of the history behind the prison system as it exists today, and the way it's utilized and has been utilized as really to to maintain certain class structure people don't really think of the United States in that way, but um, the the prison system has really been used to maintain Really to maintain essentially a slave class. That's the only only way that you can officially be enslaved in this country is through the prison system. And uh, it has created a cycle of people going in and out of prison as a result of poverty and continued punishment. You don't just serve your time and then you come home and you can you know, get a job and, and all of that. Our, our, our economy and our, our, our political and social systems are structured in such a way that don't really accommodate that. And I think that's a lot of what you're seeing people try to deal with at different levels. But it's a bit, this prison is big business in the United States. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So you kind of have to keep churning people through there if you want your businesses to make money. It's, mm-hmm. it's huge business. So I think it's, it's difficult. Um, and you can't really separate, you know, race and socioeconomics from, from the equation because of that history, you know, uh, I, and I get curious. So what are the, what is the prison system like, you know, in Denmark, for example, what, you know, if I were to, Heaven, heaven forbid i go to denmark and do something bad (laughs) i do something bad um if i go and do something bad what what would that process look like um you know assuming i can't get the embassy to come in and and plead my case to get me out of the country right but you know let's say let's say something happens and i bonk somebody on the head and and they die so what would happen to me in denmark
1: then you go to prison as you should but you would probably or not probably you go to prison in completely different ways than in america on many different levels first of all you would go to a public and not a private prison we do not have private prisons in denmark that's a business We have prisons run by the government because incarcerating people, it's a public matter. It's a question of protecting the public against perpetrators. It's not a question of money. And that is how it should be, in my opinion. Then you would probably go through a trial where my opinion is that the prosecutor would be just as determined to make sure you were innocent or guilty as your defense would be. Mm. I have never, and I've been working, you know, many years back for a short period of time as a criminal reporter. I've never, ever heard of a wrongful conviction in Denmark. Never. Um, I'm sure that there's a lot of people when they are being charged, they're innocent. But I actually do not believe that there are many people, I've never heard one of them, being in prison in Denmark saying we're innocent. So wrongful convictions, if there's any in Denmark, it's a very, very few. Mm -hmm. And if you went to prison in Denmark, Let's say for first-degree murder, you will probably, and it's good that you're sitting down today, (laughs) you will probably serve eight years. Eight years? Wow. Yeah. You're just just repeating what all Americans, or reacting the way that Americans react. Wow. Eight years for committing murder. Ten years for committing murder. It's nothing. And yeah, in in many ways it's nothing. But what if almost ninety nine percent of these people committing murder? They're getting an amount of counseling, education, you know, treatment that makes sure that they're not gonna be reentries to the prison system. Once released, because that is the fact that, yeah, we have a lot of reentries, but that would normally be people who are doing burglaries, who are stealing cars, mm. who might be, you know, getting into bar fights and stuff like that. But if you do a reentry as a murder in Denmark, it will normally be because you are involved with gang activities and so on Hmm. then let's put it into another context and i think this is really important mm -hmm. in denmark we're like six million people Mm -hmm. out of these six million people you'll probably have in a year roughly it could go up and down one year could be 40 the next 60 but let's say that we on average have like 50 homicides a year wow! out of 6 million people and if you actually look into these homicides why they committed I would say half of them they're committed because a husband didn't accept he became jealous when the wife came home and said I'm leaving you, I'm not gonna you know, live with your crap anymore. (laughs) I've had it. I'm leaving. And then he becomes jealous. He might even become more jealous if you come home and say, sorry, I've fallen in love with another man. But a lot of these murders, they're jealousy murders. The rest, they would be gang related. It would be Mm -hmm. organized crime. Mm -hmm. It would be a gang selling dope, killing a competitor. It is so rare, thank God, that we have people who are completely innocent or unknown to the perpetrator that actually lose their lives. Naturally, it does happen. But it's so rare, I would say, Mm -hmm. with 50 murders out of 6 million people. It's because we have a society where the only ones in this society having guns that would be police officers that would be soldiers i have I'm a fairly amount i want to ask amount. yeah
0: but, but i want to ask you about this because i think there's more to it than just the guns because you know there are tons of ways to kill people obviously mm-hmm. all of these husbands killing their wives aren't doing it always with guns right they could be choking them to death or bonking them on the head or whatever so i'm, I'm less concerned about the guns that's a whole nother discussion but Mm -hmm. i am curious about the societal structure because one of the challenges here in the united states is not only do you not get counseling at these levels that it sounds like you're talking about takes place in denmark not only are there limited education programs especially from state to state it varies tremendously from state to state for example california tends to have a lot of programs in prison Um, But they even are spotty across different prisons. But you may go someplace like North Carolina or Louisiana or Arizona or Texas, and they may have less of those things. And again, it varies by prison. But they also do things here like basically say, if you get in any trouble while you're in prison, guess what? You can't do any of the programs. So that almost creates a, a a cycle where you may get into a program, but then you get kicked out. You get into a program and then you get kicked out, at which point it's, well, what good is the program if people are constantly being kicked out rather than trying to actually deal with whatever the issues are. And then the abject poverty that a lot of people go back to when they come out on top of the lack of education, the lack of counseling and so forth here, I think encourages recidivism. It it just encourages people going back because then what are your options? You go back to the streets, you go back to doing the things that you did before as opposed to being able to see your way out to another place. I'm not saying that that is an excuse. I'm saying it is human nature to fall back into our same patterns. And unless things dramatically change. And it sounds like based on what you're saying that there's an not just counseling, but there are actual structured programs that, does, that are designed to help people change the way they think, the way that they feel, and the way that they understand life. Is that what I'm hearing from you?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, and that's how it should be. So should it be a gift going to prison? No. But... Let's look at it this way. Let's say that we're not counseling and educating perpetrators for the sake of the perpetrators, but for the sake of society. Mm -hmm. We're not going to lock them up forever. There are many reasons for not doing that. But when we let them out, we want better people to come out because we don't want them to harm another innocent person. So, There should be a lot of counseling. There should be a lot of education. And people, they shouldn't be kicked out of programs as another punishment on top of the punishment they already have. Because who are they going to punish by the end of the day? The innocent person that they rob, mug, or whatever they do on the street once they're released. Mm -hmm. We want better people out of the prisons than we put in. And another thing is, we can always debate the reason or how crimes are being committed. But there's also another thing that we need to put into that equation, that is, how do we actually detect these crimes before they're committed? How do we actually detect a possible perpetrator because he or she is more likely to be, to commit crimes because they come from a certain background, a certain area and so on that will put them on a path of, of, of um, becoming criminals. We actually want to catch them and put them on the right path before they become possible criminals um, perpetrators before they are actually going to prison. Mm-hmm. So that's another task of society. And naturally it's a huge chance to the American society with perhaps something like 50 million people living below, uh, the poverty, uh, lines and rates, um, with all these people living in poverty, you have a lot of people who are potentially going to try to better their lives by stealing other people's money. Um, There's no excuse for committing crimes, but definitely, if you do not have money, you do not have opportunities in life. If you do not have money, you're not the one who's going to go to college. If you do not have money, then it is human nature that you'll try to find a way to eat or you'll try to find a way to support your family. And again, Mm -hmm. there's no excuse for committing crimes, but still there might be some people who do not see any other way than going down to the shop stealing. And if you grow up in a society where there's no education, where the only thing that you're taught is actually being a violent person or react to negativism in in life with violence or being even more brutal than the one that you're facing, then, you know, how are we ever going to change these people around? It's a huge shift in in the society. It's a huge shift where, you know, it's not each person for himself. And if this person takes an eye, then we'll take his eye. It is a huge shift in the direction of saying, we want to be a more humane, society where we actually care for each other and the reason why i care for you is because i want you to care for my brother for my daughter for my father my mother or my friends why not and, and you know it does sound very romantic but if you create a society where you just feel responsibility not for yourself or your next of kin but actually also for your neighbor and your neighbor's neighbor, then my opinion is definitely that then you'll also get a society where you feel a responsibility for not doing harm to your neighbors and so on. Um, And if, if you really want to solve the huge, the huge crime problems that America has, then you really need to look into, as an example, people living in in, in poverty and creating opportunities for these people. And if you don't like the opinion of doing it because, you know, everyone deserves right to education and healthcare and so on, then do it for an egoistic purpose to make it safer for you to send your kids to school in the morning.
0: Well, well, I've got to be honest with you. That seems to go against modern American thinking.
1: It's really, it's sad.
0: It's sad because test it's common you on that sense.
1: One. Let me test you on that one.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I love America. I love my American friends. I've been, you know, traveling America for more than 25 years. I think I've been to close to like 40 states. And America is like Europe's closest ally. There's so much to admire about America and Americans, no doubt. And America does a lot of good. It's it's the leader of the free world and then that's how it should be. But I also have to turn it a bit around and say, What about when we look at crime statistics? Then America is a living nightmare. If we look at the numbers of murders, general crime, and so on, then there's no leadership about America, or at least I would say there's nothing to admire. So this might go against the American way of thinking. But that's also why I'm saying You don't have to do this for your neighbor or the guy living 10 blocks down the street. Do it for your kids. Make this shift because it's, by the end of the day, a question of whether you will feel safe as a person yourself, and if your next of kin will feel safe. And as long as America has 50 million people living in poverty, then you have a daily bomb that goes off, flooding the nation with crimes in many different aspects. Because people they might not have edu- education or possibilities, and so on. And instead, they'll go and they'll do crime. They'll but do it, drugs. You and, and I so don't. On.
0: You and I don't fundamentally disagree. Mm-hmm. I can tell you that that it, I have seen a great deal of evidence that the united states is not at a point yet although i have a great deal of hope for it based on what i see with my children but the united states is not yet at a point where people are willing to do what is right for enlightened self-interest which is what you're really talking about this is enlightened self-interest if you are willing to structure the society in such a way that people have adequate Health care. They have adequate food and water and housing, so that when they go to school, they are going to school in decent buildings and they can have good teachers and they can actually concentrate because all that other stuff is off their plate as you know as far as how they're living. And then they come out into relatively safe neighborhoods and they're not at 15 years old or 14 years old trying to figure out how they're going to help their parents feed the other siblings, I think that the United States isn't there yet because you're almost taking out of context the history of this country. And I think I tend to be a little sensitive to this because coming from down south, there's always this perception that people from outside of the south, and that's in the United States as well, have that oh, well, the South is this way because of its history of slavery and this, that, and the other, and race relations. But it's really this way across the country. And that history of separate but equal, even though it wasn't the law in in other parts of the country, that is still what is ruling the way things are structured in our society today. And because of that, you have cycles of poverty and cycles of uh, incarceration and cycles of dependence on government assistance that gets really hard to break out of over and over and over again. I'm not saying it's impossible because people do it all the time. But there's also an overemphasis on the these crime numbers in some ways because we are a country of 50 million you know, there are 50 million people living below the poverty line. I forget what the actual whole population is in the United States. It's huge.
1: 320 Very, million.
0: 320 million. We're not all dying in the streets. So obviously, the crime... But 50 t-
1: million. But well, 50 but, but, million but, but, out of 320. That's I, a I lot. That.
0: That's a lot as far as living in, the, in poverty. What I mean is all those people aren't out bashing people in the skull. So mm-hmm. obviously... I think sometimes there's a tendency to want to frighten. I think Americans live in a great deal of fear. And I think that, that that is something that's perpetuated by the media and by our government in some ways to keep us separated. And that's why you see that it's so hard for people to embrace these concepts that you're talking about. It only makes sense from a light, enlightened self interest perspective, right? Mm-hmm. Do what's right, make sure the kids can eat make sure they have food in their stomach and a decent place to sleep. And then when they go to school, they'll be able to do better because they're not worrying about what they're gonna eat. You know what I mean? But I don't think we're there yet. And I think a lot of that is historical. And I wonder how do um, Europeans, or, or is there any, any sense or understanding of that context um, as you all look at, at what goes on in the United States? Because a lot of that context I think is, is really important.
1: Yeah, um, pardon me, but, but what's the question?
0: The question is, well, how do you all look at, do you all do you all take into account the history of the country in terms of uh, slavery, the way the prison system was developed, the way the policing system was developed, largely initially to capture uh, escaped slaves, the, the mm-hmm. way the system is used to um, maintain a certain societal class and race structure and the the way that this is nationwide uh in terms of these disparities what how do you all perceive these things and do you all take those those pieces into account because european history is very different from ours in that regard
1: true Uh, european history is very diverse in the way that you'll travel over a short distance and you'll find completely different cultures, completely different languages, etc. Mm-hmm. So Europe is actually much more diverse than Americans think. Mm-hmm. But I think that there's something that is basic for most European countries. And that would be, as an example, the access to medical care, the access to free education and so on. And I think that means a lot to a society, especially free education, because you know, the better educated you are, the more possibilities you'll have in life.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And naturally America has a history in many different aspects. Um, but you know, history is history you also need to act upon history and move a nation in the direction that you want it to go. So the history that America had 100 years ago will naturally affect America today, but that does not mean that America should not change in a better direction in some aspects, and so should Europe. We've had a period of time in Europe, and in some countries we still do, where you'll find nationalism on the march again. So Europe comes from a very dark history that has been influenced by the most horrible kind of uh, nationalism as we saw just uh, back in the 1940s. Mm -hmm. Uh, and and how can some countries understand me correctly but because it's not to be compared but you'll see a lot of people who are um more affiliated with um the right wing than they were perhaps just two three decades ago so how can history not have changed that today but you know you still have to debate these things you'll still have to try to change a society in a better direction than at the place it was when history was made. And I think that with America, history tells us that in, in, in certain aspects, there are all good reasons for changing things.
0: Well, I think a lot has changed. I think when I look at my kids and I see how they interact, I see that things will change more in the future. I just mm-hmm. I think that the way you're seeing uh, you know, kind of a nationalism rising in Europe, you know, you're seeing the same thing here in the United States. Yeah. And it just reminds you that it often is a uh one step forward two steps back type of process
1: mm-hmm.
0: that people go through societies go through. Some would yeah. argue that you know the the nationalism that we're seeing in the country now, uh particularly as it's related to uh President Trump and his followers or his supporters is kind of a blowback or backlash against having Barack Obama as president for eight years. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And so it was great that we were able to get to that point, but it looks like it pushed, maybe pushed us back in some ways, because you're seeing things across the country that really I wouldn't have expected to see. I mean, the kinds of things that make you start thinking, okay, I think I need to have an escape plan (laughs) just in case (laughs) things go go sideways in the United States. And so I I just always wonder how it is that Europeans perceive us um, in light of all this. I know that, I I think there's a tendency sometimes for us to look worse on paper than we really are, I guess is where I go with this. Because most of us are living our lives and not not you know being victims of crime and all of that but where it is bad it's really bad and Mm -hmm. the cycle is what i worry about so much because i don't even i don't even know that there's the will to try and fix it do you all even have these kinds of problems in denmark i mean you all have a do you all have like a living wage laws there or or something like that that helps to keep people above the poverty line? How do you... And then who are the gang members and where are they coming from? Are they uh, not to scapegoat the eastern europeans but we know that sometimes they sometimes they do things that they maybe shouldn't do so Mm -hmm. who 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 are your gang members are these kids who are growing up in what would be the equivalent of our projects here or how does that work
1: you know i think it's 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 fairly easy to say that if you look at certain type of crimes uh, a lot of, of crimes when it comes to burglaries and stuff like that, naturally Danes do it as well, but it often has a tendency that, uh, people from, from, um, Eastern Europe, they are uh, committing these crimes. And at times you'll find that it's not even people living in, in, in Denmark from, from, um, Countries such as, an example, Romania, that commits these crimes, it's actually gangs that travel from country to country in Europe committing these. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the statistics, a huge number of the people being arrested, charged, and convicted with this uh, sort of crimes, they're Eastern Europeans. Uh, if you look into the more hardcore aspects of gang-related crimes, such as um, murders, drug dealing, etc. A lot of these gang members are today more and more uh, kids of parents who came here as refugees mm. or, or or immigrants. You'll have a huge number that comes from Middle Eastern countries and so on. And if you go back twenty, thirty years. And you looked at a classical, typical gang member in Denmark. He would be wearing a leather vest and it would say Hells Angels or it would say another outlaw um, uh, motorcycle club. Um, But it's like these kind of gang members today have been outpowered by new gangs, street gangs, etc. And unfortunately, a lot of these gang members are uh, people who descend uh, to, to um, refugees coming to Denmark um, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Mm. And society has not been good enough integrating these refugees into society. And then we're back. They did not have enough opportunities. They did not have enough education on uh, what kind of culture they actually came to and how they were gonna fit in, how they were gonna learn the language and so on. So that is, you know, uh, a huge problem. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and, And one of the biggest problems in a lot of European countries today is we've not been good enough adapting these people, integrating them into society. If you are, as an example, a country like Germany with 90 million people and you have almost 10 million people who are immigrants one way or another. And if a huge part of these immigrants, they are actually not integrated into society, then you have a route for problems in many different ways. Mm -hmm. Um, So naturally, a country like Denmark has its own problem. Europe has its own problem. And our problems might be different than the ones that that America is facing right now. Um, But going back to your question of how Europeans view and, 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 and look at America today, I still have a feeling that Europeans see Americans as great friends as our closest airline and so on but I also see a change that I didn't see 4 years ago mm-hmm. today a lot of Europeans and, and 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 I hate to say this and 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 uh, I apologize in advance, <laughs> but I also see a lot of Europeans, not because they want to, but perhaps they don't know how to react in other ways, actually laughing at what's going on in America. Not because they want to laugh, but because it seems at times like a show that could only be designed for television. Yeah. With the diversity and with how, uh, and and I've never said this before, but I'm going to say it now, but the way that the administration and the presidency in some aspects has conducted um, itself and, and, and so on, where it's like you open up your newspaper in the morning. To see what crazy stuff have been going on since I went to bed last night, it has not, in my opinion, been like that ever before in Europe. People they had their opinions about Bush when he went to war. Mm-hmm. Did he do it for the right reasons or not? People they were like, dead. Clinton actually have sexual relations with that woman or not, Uh, and and so on, but today it's like the last thing that, that people have been like, what's going on? Did he tell to attack Iran and then have second thoughts or not? Who's in administration today? Who is the president's best friend today and who will tomorrow be his worst enemy and so on? And I think the people, they have been so confused in many ways and not believe what they've been hearing uh, or, or, or seeing that they, you know, don't know any other better way than to um, react by laughter and, 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 and saying this is some kind of, in some aspects, an absurd theater. And And one thing that has also struck me is normally European politicians, they have always treated the American presidency with a lot of respect. Also because of the power that America upholds and needs to uphold in this world because the world needs a strong America, a leader in the world. But at the same time, I've never ever heard before so many European leaders actually saying what's going on in America right now is way too absurd for us to accept it. The world is so vulnerable right now uh, from what a handful, or perhaps not even a handful of people they're actually doing and saying and changing their mind about and so on. And it's a shame because the world's so vulnerable right now that it needs one strong hand. And it just seems not to be present right now. And it's one hand today and another tomorrow. And that's really sad. Uh, And what just strikes me and what I felt quite surprised about is I sat down not long ago Actually, this week with uh, some great American friends. And if you go back three years, they would never, ever have said anything nice about uh, Mr. Trump. Um, They were by no means in favor of him. But truth of reality is, when we discussed American politics the other day, They were saying, despite being, you know, always voting uh, uh, for the Democrats and so on, they are saying, hmm, but actually, in an economical way, we're much better off today than we were with Obama. (laughs) So, that just made me think, does it actually work in the way that you can disagree and actually feel kind of embarrassed towards a precedent in many ways. But if you you suddenly look down to your wallet and it seems more full than it did three years ago, two years ago, um, can you then forget about all the embarrassments you had and all the disagreements you have, because by the end of the day, money rules. Money is the king, and and you know I'm very curious about seeing how the opinions about Mr. Trump is going to go from here if the financial situation of 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 uh, the nation and 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 people's private wallets will, um, will go, if things will also, you know, better even more, uh, will we then forget about, you know, what Trump thinks in, in, in many other directions that has nothing to do with money? Um, so that really surprised me that, you know, people who've been so much in, in, in opposition to him in a certain um, seems in favor.
0: Well, Stefan, I'm gonna put a couple of things out here. First of all, I don't think any of our European friends should be embarrassed, or you should be embarrassed that any of our European friends are laughing at us. Uh, <laughs> I laugh at us daily. I have speculated for years that the Europeans and others around the world have been laughing at us, that they must think we are the stupidest people they have ever seen in their lives because Americans in, as individuals tend to be smart, but you put us in big old giant groups and all kinds of crazy goes on. So first of all, I wanna assure you, no one should feel any kind of way about laughing at us. It's kind of hilarious on a certain level. The other thing I wanna say is I think it's really easy for people to forget that the economy they have right now is not the result of Donald Trump, it's actually the result of Obama's policies because it takes two, three, four years before you see any changes at all. And the changes started happening while Obama was in office. And I think it's really fascinating how people have this selective memory about what was going on and the things that he did that really did help turn this ship around. And not just here in the United States, but really as the United States goes, so goes the rest of the world in so many ways. Mm -hmm. So he really Mm -hmm. turned the ship around for, for the global economy. But it doesn't surprise me that you have that question, because I do think that in the end, most people do kind of look at their own wallets and say, well, do I feel better off now or worse off now? And then base a lot of opinions on that. And I think that's one of the flaws in the way that our society is structured in that we tend to not think bigger picture sometimes, because we focus so much on personal economics. And I don't know if that's so much the case in other places, but that's the way it seems in the United States. And I think it's because we have this pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of concept, which is kind of silly, because that's not something you can actually do physically. Um, And I think we have this concept that, well, if the economy is going well, then you can do anything, which there's some truth to that. If the economy is going well, you can do anything, but if it's only going well for a certain percentage of the people, Mm -hmm. then it's not really going well. And I think most people don't realize, I didn't realize myself how little money most Americans earn given the cost of living, particularly in in some of these larger cities, like I'm in the Los Angeles area now. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize that I think it was a few, I want to say about four or five years ago, NPR had a chart that showed incomes in the United States and what it took to be like in the top 10% of earners in the United States was only like $120,000 or $110,000 a year. So if you think about what that means, that means 90% of the people in this country don't even earn enough to live indoors in a major city Mm -hmm. that's crazy if you can yeah thinking about the population of the country that is absolutely insane because if you earn less than i don't even see how it's possible to live in a place like los angeles or new york um maybe not so much chicago might be more affordable but you know what i mean these major cities where so many people live and earn less than $80,000 a year, let's say. How is it possible? So I think our society is structured in such a way because of the cost of living and stuff. I don't know if it's this way in Europe because I've never lived in Europe. I haven't traveled Europe very much. But the way that things tend to be structured here in terms of the economy, I think really encourages that, that kind of focusing on your pocketbook. And if everything's good in your pocketbook, then it must be good in the rest of the world, right? Mm Hmm. Yeah, I don't. Is that is that common for you guys? You know, in Denmark and other European countries as well, or do people tend to think more greater good? I get the impression that you all think more greater good.
1: Honestly, I do believe that is true. Mm -hmm. And in Denmark, we'll pay almost fifty percent of all the money we make. In Texas. So when I tell Americans that they like, wow, is the government actually stealing half of your money? <laughs> but it means I do not have ever to worry about whether I can afford medical care for myself, for my daughter, for my relatives, because it's all free. So mm. I will actually, you know. If something would happen, I would go to the doctor tomorrow. I wouldn't get my wallet out. It would be free. If something more severe would happen, I would go to the hospital. I would never have to live with fear of being able to pay for the treatment that I'm getting or not. I would never ever, and it's super important, I would never have to worry about if my daughter would actually be able to get an education and get into college because it would be free. The government would actually pay my daughter something that's equal to like $1,000 a month to study. What? So we actually pay people to go to college. When I drive down, you know, the highway, mm-hmm. there's not really any bumps in it or anything like that because it's all being taken care of by the government. Personal, important personal issues like healthcare, education, housing, etc. It's taken care of by the government when you can't take care of yourself. Physical aspects like roads, that we do not have super polluted forest, etc. It's also taken care by the government because we pay that by these 50% roughly of tax- taxation. And if you told an American you need to pay 50% of your income. What a revolution there will be tomorrow. But people in Denmark and a lot of European countries, they happily pay their taxes because it means that by paying your tax, you take care of your neighbor and your neighbor takes care of you. And by the end of the day, you have a... Uh, nation, you have a country, you have a society where you don't have poverty, where you don't have people who are not getting medical treatment because they can't afford it. So actually, what would you also prefer in that aspect? Would you actually prefer paying for your neighbor having treatment that means he or she will not run into the street um committing crimes because they never ever had mental health care, or would you actually have pain for, you paying for the security and safety that lies within people suffering from mental diseases actually getting treatment just to you know mention a minor uh, aspect of what also comes out of paying um, your tax happily to the, to, to, to the state. And I think that goes for a lot of European countries that um, the access to education and, and, and medical care, you know, super important aspects of life uh, that you don't have to worry about it. That gives people in many ways, I would say a better life than if they would have to get out of bed in the morning worrying about if they could actually pay off the debt debt that comes from putting a child through education and so on.
0: Oh, my goodness. I think it's fabulous. I think, you know, it's, it's just an interesting concept because Europe has all of these... Um, what I would consider to be good communal concepts, you know, how we live together as a society, how we make our society better, how we make all of our lives better concepts that, that you all live by. And I know it varies from country to country, but some, some of these are so common. And I just, it just makes you wonder where, I mean, the United States was for all intents and purposes born of, (laughs) <laughs> of so many European concepts. I know the Brits are, uh, are a little bit different in terms of the way that they think about these things. And and they had control of so much of the territory. And I know that's the basis of so much that we do here. But it just makes me wonder, because it seems like we've developed so differently than the European countries have. And I think in some ways to our detriment. You know, I, I really like that. Um, as my my son's godfather is Canadian and he said, Mm -hmm. well, if I needed to, I could go and get every organ in my body changed for like 50 bucks. And I (laughs) I said, I think there's something to be said about knowing that is something that knowing that your society has you, that you can only fall so low. You know what I mean? Because everybody deserves just that minimum way of life. Not saying that you, everybody should be eating filet mignon every night, but everybody deserves to have just I mean, just by being a human being and breathing air, right?
1: Yeah, You know, in in my opinion, every person deserves to have the possibilities of going and creating a great life for himself. Um, And if you have the ability, the talent, if you Work hard enough to make a million dollars a year. Good for you. But the people who do not have these possibilities, perhaps because of they come from a background where they didn't have the opportunities in the first place for education and so on, because, you know, as a child, you do not decide if you have the possibility of getting an education if you have the, the possibility of being inspired to do, in some, to, do, to do something with your life, that is not a choice that you have uh, as a child. That is a choice and possibilities you're given by your parents, by your community and so on. Um, so if you do not have that, then you should actually have a society that will help you underway because by the end of the day, it will all come full back to society. If you do not have people lying in the streets sick because they can't afford medical care, if you do not have people creating problems with crimes or whatever it may be, because no one took care of them, um, you are way better off as a society if you p- help people on way, if you help them succeed. And it can be succeeding just getting a job as a bus driver. Mm-hmm. But that's much better than these people living in poverty, um, committing crimes. Um, it just You don't just succeed as a person or society if you create millionaires and only millionaires. Success in a society is when each person will do something good. Whether it's driving a school bus, whether it's creating business that will employ hundreds and hundreds of thousands and thousands of employees, these are all successes. And a good, vital, healthy society needs these successes, big or small. One thing it definitely does not need is people living in poverty, people committing crimes, or just people who have been anything else but productive towards themselves, towards their neighbors, towards the greater good. And in order to that making that happen you need to have a platform you need to have a fundament that these people can stand on and that is called society
0: yeah i think it's time for us all to look at our societal contracts (laughs) i think that you guys have got a much better handle on that not saying that there are no problems in europe but i think you guys have got a much better handle on that than we do in the united states these days Mm -hmm. well stefan i i just want to thank you for this wonderful conversation tell everyone where they can find you can they find you you have a website social media that sort of thing
1: yeah yeah um i'm on uh, all uh, social media platforms and um the easiest way uh to look me up would actually be by googling me um my name is Stefan Ho, and um, I'm the only one, I believe, with that name in, in the world, actually. Uh, the name is S-T-E-F-F-E-N, and then my last name, H-O-U. And, and, and if you put Stefan Ho, my name, uh, into .com, then you'll find Stefan my website. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and, and, and so on. And, uh, people, they're always more than welcome to get in touch with me, um, no matter what it is. Um, so pe- if people, they want to send me a text, send me an email and so on, um, I'll be happy to hear what they've got on their heart and, and, and so on, because that's another thing that also creates a good society. That's actually, uh, people connecting and communicating, um, so people, they can find me in these places and I'll be happy to hear from them and, and, and let them hear um, back from me.
0: That's awesome. And you have a new book that's going to be coming out, yes?
1: Yes, I do. Um, I just put on, uh, out The Deprived Innocent on, on death row in uh, February uh, this year. Um, but here, fall, um, I'm putting out a new book that is, I'm not going to tell you too much about it, um, but my first book, or not my first book, my, my 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 book, The Deprived, looked into giving innocent people in in um, prison a voice. Uh, I'm actually doing something that I think is, though that is important as well. This is just, you know, in my opinion, a bit more important, and that is giving children a voice, Mm. children who become innocent victims of uh, heinous crimes, I've looked into what leads to family abductions, what leads to um, stranger abductions, what kind of um, danger does um, human trafficking possess to everyday American children. what dangers are our kids actually exposed to every time they log on to a computer? Mm -hmm. Um, So that is what my new book is about. It's about um, mainly children being trapped by adults who wants to take advantage of their innocence. Once the book is out, I'll be happy to be much more concrete and tell you much more about it. But you know, I don't want to give any other offers good ideas. <laughs> <laughs> so so that is why I'm, 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 I'm telling a bit, but not as much as I could.
0: Well, I need you to promise to come back and talk all about your book and the research that you did, because I love that you are digging into these topics that are really important to people's lives that, you know, really can help change people's lives and help change yep. our understanding of, of topics that we really just don't know much about.
1: Yeah. And, you know, it's important doing it. Uh, and, and, and we're actually back uh, and it will make a beautiful closure for, for our, our conversation. But we're actually back where we started. Where I was telling about that I went into business, the corporate world. At an early age, and that was mainly about creating something for myself
0: mm-hmm.
1: now forty three years old, the most important thing for me is actually after being so egoistic and, and, and only uh, focusing on myself for so many years is actually giving something back and I think you know it just at least it just makes me happy but if you want a good life, if you want a good society, if you want, you know, just a good everyday living, I think it becomes that much more easier if you're actually focusing on giving something to others. And don't be afraid to give others because if you give others, I'm sure there's going to pass someone by who wants to give something back to you as well. And it's much more fun being part of a group, a unit, a society than being yourself.
0: I agree. I agree. Thank you. Thank you, Stefan, for being on Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Berard. Thank you, Funny. Well, that's our show this week, guys. You can reach out to me online at urbanbookeditor.com or michelleberard.com. You can also find me on Facebook and Instagram as Urban Book Editor. Send me a note. I'd love to hear from you. Feel free to send over some topics you'd like us to cover on the show. Make sure you guys listen to the show on December 6, 2019, when my guest will be Dr. Terrilyn Rivers Cannon. You can find us twice a month on Fridays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Mountain, 7 p.m. Central, and 8 p.m. Eastern at the the thesomewhereinthemiddlepodcast.com. Let's continue the conversation. You guys be good, stay mindful, and remain prayerful. Have a great Thanksgiving. Peace and blessings, y'all.